What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's great to be with you, Ashley. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Yes, we had a great weekend, great weather here in New York, uh, and now I feel like we're finally getting to summer. Summer is so, so close, which means we will be taking a break eventually, but we still have an entire month of great content to bring to you in the podcast feed. Yeah, some really great guests coming up, including this week with Bishop John Dolan. He's the bishop in Phoenix, and he wrote a really powerful essay for America Magazine. It's titled, A Ministry of Human Fragility why I established a mental health office in the Diocese of Phoenix. Bishop John Dolan has lost loved ones to suicide, so he he opens up about that and why he was so passionate about bringing a mental health uh, office to his diocese. And just want to let everyone know before we get into that interview and that conversation that we do touch on suicide and want to let people know if you're having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. You can find more resources from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at www.afsp.org. And in Signs of the Times this week, we are talking to our friend and colleague, Father James Martin, about a new pastoral reflection from the Vatican on engaging with social media. Yes. So definitely going to stick around for that. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, what's on tap this week? We are having one of my favorite, Maker's Mark, which was the recommendation of Bishop Dolan. Have you been to Maker's Mark Distillery? I haven't. That is on the bucket list. It's a great place. It's a pilgrimage site of sorts. Uh, (laughs) Got to go there with my dad for his birthday once. So. Uh, Love Maker's Mark. So cheers. Thanks, Bishop Dolan, for the wreck. Speaking of social media, the Vatican has this new document that we're going to be unpacking uh, with Father James Martin here in just a second. Maybe that's something you don't feel super comfortable with, or you tend to stick to one platform over the other. Like maybe you're like, I get Instagram, but Twitter is a lost art for me. Don't even mention TikTok. Well, I have great news for you because Wondrium has an incredible course called Social Media 101. Yeah, and one of the best parts about Wondrium is that all the lectures come from experts in their field. So you know, unlike social media, you're not going to be getting misinformation when you listen to this course. Uh, It's all trusted and vetted, and you can listen to it anywhere ad-free. That's right. And in Social Media 101, they're getting both like the basics of how to use these platforms, but also sort of why they all exist. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, YouTube, TikTok, and more. So you're definitely going to want to check this one out. We love Wondrium, and we know you will too. So do what we did and sign up today. Right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners a free month. That's right. To get that offer, you just have to visit our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Sign up today and get a free month. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week we're talking to our colleague, Father Jim Martin, about a new document from the Vatican on social media. 
Welcome back to Jesuitical, Jim. Great to be here. And you are obviously like a Catholic social media expert in your own right, but you had a particular uh, involvement based on your role with the Dicastery for Communications, correct? Yeah. So I'm a consultor to the Dicastery, which is a very, very, very low level of uh, staff um, in the Vatican. And uh, we were all asked to contribute to this document. So it was a product of many, many people. And they, they pulled it all together in the end. Okay. And it's, so it's called Toward a Full Presence, a Pastoral Reflection on Engagement with Social Media. Why did the Vatican want to come out with this document, both in general, but also at this moment? Well, the dicastery is very concerned with not only communications from the Vatican, so internal communications, uh, so like the Holy See Press Office, L'Osservatorio Romano, all the social media accounts, but they're also concerned with uh, how people use social media and how people communicate within the church. And so what they or we decided was it's really time for a document like this, especially because there's so much, um, you know, kind of hatred and trolling and all that kind of stuff on Catholic social media. They saw that as a real need. Yeah, and, I wanted uh, to ask about that. What, yeah. Do people at the Vatican actually keep up with Catholic Twitter and what's oh, totally. going on there? They do. Yeah, totally. Okay. So they are, especially in the Dicastery for, for Communication, yeah. you know, where they help out with the Pope's own social media accounts and the Vatican's social media accounts. So they see what's going on. They're very savvy. Do you get a sense that they're most con mostly concerned about the United States or is this a global problem for the church? Well, the U.S. is a special problem, um, but it's really a problem all over the place. In fact, I had a conversation with some people a couple of months ago who the dicastery put me in touch with, this is not secret, uh, who were struggling with how to promote the Vatican's message while they're getting attacked. So, and this, these were people from all over the world um, that were suffering from this. And so I think that's one of the, the goads to them was you know, they have people that they know um, who are experiencing this, but also on a more positive way of looking at it. They want to use social media as a way of proclaiming the gospel. I want to move through some of the major points in the document. And it centers around this comparison to the Good Samaritan, right? Which I thought was very savvy because that's also Pope Francis's technique um, in Fratelli Tutti. So what is, what, why, what does the Good Samaritan have to say about how we use social media? So it has to say a lot. Um, first of all, um, you're dealing with someone who you may not know, right? So the Good Samaritan, when he's coming by, uh, the beaten man by the side of the road in Luke's gospel is Jewish and he's a Samaritan and those groups are generally at odds. Uh, and so it's reaching out to people who may be different, who may be seen as other, who you may even see as an enemy. Um, but, you know, one of the things I like to focus on is that the road itself is kind of dangerous. So, um, you know, as you know, when you go to the Holy Land, you can see the Jericho Road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's full of twists and turns. And you could see where robbers would be kind of lying in wait for you. So the Samaritan had to kind of put himself out there and take some risk to help the beaten man. And the same on social media. You know, when you try to reach out to people, when you try to be charitable, when you try to give people the benefit of the doubt, people might attack you. So... It is not without risk. And that's one of the, the aspects I really liked about that story. But, you know, basically, can you be a good Samaritan on social media? That's kind of the, the sort of a real through line for the document. And what, what advice does this document give to users in that regard? Do they have, you know, best practices for, for tweeting or posting on Instagram? One of the best practices um, is, in fact, not seeing a person as an other, right? Seeing the person as a friend, seeing the person as a brother or sister, someone who's in the community, uh, and not treating them as someone who's dis uh, also, again, giving people the benefit of the doubt, trying to put them, trying to put yourself in their shoes. They talk about that a couple times in the document. Listening. One of the great things about the document, I think it says that we don't have access to the conversation between the Samaritan and the beaten man. But there's a great question there where they say that 
the Samaritan must have said, hey, what happened to you? And so it's a kind of invitation for people on social media to, to try to understand uh, the other person on the other side of the Twitter or Instagram or Facebook account. Well, I feel like there is this, there's this invitation in the document to practice real deep listening. And um, particularly from people who are just like using social media passively, right? So maybe people who aren't posting all the time and creating content, but your average person who's just like kind of scrolling, there's a chasm between sort of like deep listening, deep engagement, and sort of the mindless scrolling that I do before I go to sleep and when I wake up every day, that is, it just feels very fragmented in a way that makes deep listening impossible. Yeah. And the the Samaritan had to have listened to the, the man by the side of the road. And one of the things we think about is when he's taking him to the inn, right? So he, he puts him on the donkey and takes him to the inn, uh, puts him up for the night, presumably has dinner with him. That's a long conversation. And this is also part of Pope Francis's culture of encounter. So what they're trying to do and what the dicastery is really always trying to do is to increase uh, people's ability to connect with one another over various forms of social media. I thought it was great that they did it. I mean, I think it's very to the moment. It's a little long. Um, I'm not sure how many people will get through it. But when you sort of meditate on certain parts of it, it really has a lot of richness um, for the for the reader. And another piece of advice it has is, is logging off occasionally. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, but What's your approach to making sure you you are not constantly online and detoxing from the toxicity of Twitter every so often? Well, as we know, because we're doing this kind of professionally, you sort of have to look at this stuff. But I find that when I'm starting to despair or starting to get like depressed, um, I think this it's time to log off. And I, I try to um, limit that certainly before I go to bed. And also, I try not to go down these rabbit holes of you know people who are attacking one another and online disputes and things like that. I find those are very unhelpful. So it's a kind of a little bit of a diet, right? You kind of have to sort of fast from social media once in a while. And I, I was happy they put that in too. You know, this idea of being a neighbor, um, which is the question that Jesus is responding to or answering, you know, who is my neighbor? I feel like there was a shift in social media when we went from like, oh, this is cool, I can have friends online. And then there was a, a shift where it went from friends to followers. And now I follow people and now people are users. They're not my friends, which made it a much harder thing. It, it, it was difficult to yell at my, you know, my aunt on my Facebook page, you know, when the advent of this all started. Um, but once we kind of shifted that way, I feel like things got more toxic and more contentious. In addition to like, and the document's not, you know, uh, naive about this. There are, there are, media companies that are controlling these for-profit spaces. These are not like public goods yet, right? I, I don't know if you, you've seen that shift as, as social media sort of evolved and developed. Yeah, and I've also noticed that it's different on different platforms. So I find, for example, Facebook is not quite as toxic. I think it skews a little older. Instagram, which, which Ashley introduced me to, <laughs> uh, is a little more benign. That can get a little crazy. But most of the time, it's people sharing nice images, and it's not so bad. Twitter, I think, is just a cesspool. Right, and it really does kind of invite this sort of anonymous trolling. The document tries to um, to tries to kind of uh, help people with all those different platforms, and I think it does it well. But you're right; I I think that there's been a shift in the last um, five or ten years, especially on Twitter, and it's really gotten toxic and just kind of mean. Uh, and you really have to you have to you know, as Ashley was saying, you know, you not only have to take a break from it, but you do have to kind of moderate your your spiritual response to this. You can't let it in. You can't let it kind of grab you and have a hook on you. One of the things I've like been most endeared to with social media are the the opportunities create these like 
little pockets of community, um, like mm. real community, whether they're Facebook groups or um, I know that you've had some success with um, your like Friday face sharing yeah. groups. That what what has that experience been like? Sort of these like smaller communities as opposed to like the the megaphone that gets blasted yeah. That's out. been amazing. So during the pandemic, I started this daily Bible study. I don't know how I did it every day. Well, we had a lot more time, yeah. <laughs> and we we're up to like a thousand people a day because you know obviously people didn't have a whole lot to do. Um, but that was getting onerous. Uh, and then eventually, after about six months, I switched to every Friday. And it's open to everyone. But the amazing thing, Zach, is it's the same, more or less 300 people. And I kind of know them now. So they they all say hello at the beginning. And they pray for each other. Um, one of the women, Ulrika from Sweden, just came by to visit. So it's, it's much more relaxed because people know who everybody is. And everyone's there for a reason. Sometimes you get a person who comes in and trolls, but pretty funny that everybody attacks that person. And then they say, Father Jim, you know, look what's going on. But it's, um, it's much more relaxing. And I find I'm more relaxed in that setting because I know people are more or less open to what I'm saying, right? Um, so it, 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 it can still happen, but I think these places are sort of few and far between, right? You really, it has to be very intentional. One last thing I wanted to ask is the media coverage of this document has focused on the fact that it kind of calls out bishops specifically. So I, having been a part of making the document, was that a very conscious thing that Pope Francis and the Vatican were trying to um, communicate by including bishops in, in the audience or people they're addressing this to? No, in fact, I was sort of surprised to see that in the final document. I saw some drafts and uh, that didn't sort of jump out at me. I think what they're trying to do is to say that this relates to everybody. It's not just lay people. It's not just quote unquote influencers. It's it's bishops and you know who sometimes, you know, can really be sort of um, kind of unpleasant on social media. One would be surprised to see that if you're if you're not Catholic, you might think, oh, bishop, they would never do that, yeah. but they do. And so I thought it was good. I mean, it's you know, it's it's they're part of the community too, and they have to listen as well. Once again, the document is called Towards Full Presence, a Pastoral Reflection on Engagement with Social Media, out from the Dicastery for Communication. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure. And now stick around for our conversation with Bishop John Dolan. Joining us today is the Bishop of Phoenix, John Dolan. Welcome to Jesuitical, Bishop John. Thank you, Ashley. It's so good to have you, and thank you so much for joining us. So you, you had the, the cover story of America's June issue. It was uh, a ministry of fragility, how the church can support mental health. Um, so we definitely want to get into that story, to your personal story. But before we get into the conversation, I wanted to kind of frame it in, in the question of how we should talk about sensitive issues like mental health and especially um, suicide, because there are more and less helpful ways to talk about these issues, and there are harmful ways to do that. And mm -hmm. so we want to make sure we're avoiding that. So I wonder if you have any any advice on, on how to talk about these issues in a way that doesn't increase stigma or put people at even greater risk. Well, generally speaking, I would say Talking about mental health is always a good thing, but obviously avoiding certain levels of judgment and not so much judgment like in cruel judgment, like you're going to hell or anything like that, but sometimes just being pre you know, prematurely judging um, why people have mental health related issues. And sometimes it might be, well, they're just not praying hard enough, mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, uh, maybe they're possessed 
you know, which is a very common thing now, especially I find uh, among priests that that's something that they tend to lean toward, looking for the devil behind everything. And sometimes it may not. Well, most often it isn't that. So I'd say 99.9% of the time, uh, people who might even say that they're possessed have met, you know, maybe severe mental health uh, related issues. So um, it, I, I would say that most of us as human beings, we can be oppressed at times situationally, and some are oppressed all the time, but they're not necessarily possessed. Hmm. And it, uh, to me, I think that's a big piece of the puzzle when we have that conversation. And my my whole thing is that when we communicate, we always remind people that they have a place at the table of the Lord. They have a place in the church, and they should have a place in society. And um, so anytime we can remove any of those stigmas of shame or or guilt uh, related to mental health, which is has no place, <laughs> then, then the better uh, we will be. I think that's a good way to ground our conversation. Some, yeah. some, some rules. Now, one of the first things you did uh, upon coming to Phoenix was uh, create this mental health office, this mental health ministry. Why was that so important for you to do? Well, uh, we, we in San Diego, th there was a director for our office for social ministries, and he kind of leaned in that direction. And I can't remember why he did. Uh, Kent Peters, a very fine fellow, and. And uh, again, it was not terribly funded, um, but he did his best to try to um, create this mental health ministry. It was a basically a parish-based concept, though. So, so throughout the diocese, and hopefully, parishes. His hope was that parishes would be able to pick these ministries up and attend to the people who were having severe mental health-related issues, depression issues. They had suicide ideation. And just to let them know, hey, look, we're here for you. We want to offer something. But it was hard because there wasn't a lot of financial backing. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't um, uh, an opportunity to offer what we call first aid, mental health first aid uh, classes and so on. So when I came here and someone laid on us a huge gift and, and, and basically said, where would you like this to go? Which was just like, I mean, who, who, who does that? You know? But at any rate, that's what happened. And at that point, I just said, well, first thing that popped in my mind was mental health. So that's kind of what happened. Of course, it's near and dear to my heart because I've lost um, you know, three siblings through suicide and a, and a brother-in-law as well. So that obviously was the first thing that popped in my mind at the time. And so away we went. All of a sudden, we just took off and we have a wonderful office and a new director for this mental health ministry. And um, right now we're in the, the phase of just training. So we're training priests, we're training uh, deacons, we're training religious and anyone concerned um, with mental health first aid, which is kind of a state-based program. And then basically we're sharpening the ax before we try to get out there and have these places of accompaniment uh, for people in parishes. I did want to ask you about your personal story because I do imagine that is a large motivation for why you wanted to to open this ministry. And 
Uh, a few years ago, I had a, I had an opportunity to report on uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago's ministry to people who have lost loved ones to suicide, and the big takeaway I got from there is that you know this is a a kind of different way of dying, and and thus has a different sort of grief in the aftermath of it. And and in your piece, you refer to yourself as a survivor, which is the same right. as all the all the mothers who I spoke to who lost sons to suicide spoke of themselves as survivors. So I'm wondering if you can help help our listeners understand what this is like and, and why it's different. Well, sure. I lost my first brother uh, sibling when I was in eighth grade. So I had to deal with that as an eighth grader, as a youngster. And then I lost my sister and her husband uh, when I was in the seminary. So a junior in, in the seminary in college. And then my sister, my younger sister, most recently uh, last October. And so these different ages puts me in a place where losing someone, grieving over someone who had died by suicide, those ages mean a lot. Um, as a, as an eighth grader, I had no idea what to do with that. We didn't know how to deal with that. Um, you know, as and then my sister dying in uh, by suicide in in my junior year in ho- uh, college, that was different. It was still hard, but it wasn't our first rodeo. Sad to say. And then this one, uh, my sister Mary dying. Um, I, I guess we all sort of half expected this to happen because she had attempted multiple times, and it wasn't is uh, you know a matter of if, but almost when. And I think we all kind of felt, in a very weird way, a kind of a sigh of relief because I'd never met someone who wanted to die as much as she did, pretty much every day. So. It, it's an hard thing. I miss her terribly, you know, but it's just, and you just leave it up to God. I think you just, just have to turn it over to God. It's an incredibly difficult thing. I'm so sorry. And thank you for, for sharing with, with us. You mentioned in your piece, you know, being able to find support from your faith and the church as you're, as you're dealing with, with some of this grief, but, um, I know, and Ashley knows from her reporting, that that's not necessarily always the case, that some people, you know, um, for some people, that's a place for them to turn. But other times, you know, you mentioned there have been gaps sort of in our pastoral care for survivors of suicide. Could you, I mean, maybe right. both like give your experience of it and then maybe some firsthand ways you've seen some of these gaps where the church has not done so well in dealing with it? Well, I think I, well, I, it's not a surprise to you, but I think there's there have been sure. gaps in pastoral care in general. <laughs> so, and and this is just one more you know segment of that those gaps. Obviously, when we're going back to those words of judgment or judging prematurely, like, well, there must have been something wrong. This person didn't uh, pray hard enough. This person's faith was waning. This, if they just relied on God, or if they had just gone to the sacraments and things like that. And, and are you hearing well, these things from like families or from clergy or from? Yes. yes. All of the above. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. what and what did your tragic firsthand experience, how did that inform the shortcomings of those types of judgments? Like why they're not helpful, why they're not true, 
what did you see that that kind of undermined that that approach to looking at well suicide? Well, even as after my sister Mary had died uh, by suicide, you'd get two forms of prayer. A lot of a lot of cards, really, of sympathy, and some cards were well, most cards were you know we're we're with you, we're praying, and you know we trust that God is bigger than all of this, and that she's with God. That's which is good and nice. And then there were some you know we're praying that she's not in hell, you know, and they meant well, but it's sure that's like those aren't the things you want to hear, you know. Um, so I think sometimes we just kind of have people maybe make some assumptions um, and maybe based on their old traditional teachings that they had received, you know, like uh, maybe this person shouldn't be buried. Um, maybe that person is in hell, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Maybe if you could just like outline some of like, because the church has changed the way it talks about and teaches uh, this. Could you maybe outline sort of where it was and where it is now? Because even though it has changed, you, as you mentioned, some people are still handing down some of the old stuff. Yes. Well, um, I, so I'm a co-editor on a book uh, with a deacon, Ed Schoner. It was on um, a handbook for suicide survivors, survivors of suicide. Uh, so I had, you know, we had Cardinal Gregory and we had Archbishop Cordelioni, and they were all weighing in on this. And 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 what was interesting, Archbishop Cordelioni, in his segment of this book, uh, he shows us really what he calls a development of the human person, a development of dogma uh, on of humanity. And I said he's actually absolutely right on. This we have come to see. Um, this development of the human person, especially now that we're able to look under the hood with new technology and see that, you know, our brains are actual physical matter. And it's not a mind over matter approach that we have to take to um, to everyday issues. Sometimes the matter itself, the physical brain matter is so affected that it it 
our level of culpability is diminished greatly. So historically, then the church has kind of evolved to this level where now we can talk about levels of culpability, um, and especially as it relates to, you know, holes in the brain and lack of blood flow and all of these different things that cause disorder. Yeah, and this is reflected in changes in the catechism. It used to be correct. That, yeah, that, you know, suicide was always it, it was a morally grave sin, um, and the updated catechism admits that there are there are circumstances that may reduce your moral culpability. Um, Absolutely, and it's and you and it's very interesting. You talk about how how this was actually informed by science. It was the church taking into consideration what we've learned through psychiatry right. and MRIs and um, all that brain Im imaging. So that's it's a very interesting place where science has actually, as Archbishop Cordelioni said, uh, you know, led to the development of dogma. Well, and, you know, and yeah. it, it had real effects, no, because it was I mean, it was the case that you wouldn't be given a Christian burial um, if you had died by suicide. Yeah. And now, you know, church law, you, you mentioned in your piece, permits that. Right. I, I imagine that itself had to be a huge, you know, pastoral grace for that surviving. oh certainly that was and it, it i again i think our church is just moving us slowly to accept this reality that the brain is a lot deeper than we thought before and i you know i i i can't imagine how counselors psychiatrists were able to uh you know, address a person who had a mental disorder without the imaging that we have today in just in the last 30 years. So now we're able to kind of direct and target certain parts of the brain are affected. And then we can, we're able to, not we, not me, but the psychiatrists are able to prescribe drugs that are a more perfect cocktail today than they were, that they would have in the past. It's it's really amazing. So science and medicine have been able to um, inform the church's approach to to mental illness. Um, but I think what is clear from your piece is that you know not that it has its limits, but it has its lanes, and then the church has its own lane. And so I want to talk about your specific ministry in Phoenix and how you know you you recognize the church's place as opposed to uh, the place of the medical field. Well, uh, the, uh, the, the two should be walking hand in hand or driving down the same highway, maybe two different lanes, but we're driving in the same direction. And I think that's a really important thing. And uh, sometimes religion can get a little too far ahead. And so, you know, if they pray hard enough, then they're going to be they're going to be able to deal with this. On the other hand, science can get too far ahead and say faith has no place in in the field of psychiatry or the field of medicine in general but so when they work well together that's when we're in sync and i believe that both you know it, it's our age-old catholic tradition that faith and science lead to the same end you know god <laughs> ultimately and, and what is the what specifically is the church's lane as you're thinking you know as you're you know very much still getting this mental health ministry, you know, going. What are some of the things that um, you're hoping to do? Because and, and and not do, right? I guess specifically, uh, you know, the office for mental health ministry is focused on um, educating. Really, that's a big piece. If we can just educate people about the science today, 
So this mental health first aid, which is kind of a state-run program, uh, it really gets everyone up to speed on what's going on in the world of medicine in the psychological field. And then the other is the accompaniment uh, piece. So we don't diagnose, we don't treat, we don't prescribe. And we make that very clear for legal reasons, but also just practically, all we're trying to do is fill in the gap. So let's say a person is seeing a counselor. We're there also there to there to kind of bring people together anyway, and just maybe on a Sunday or a, a weekday and with other people and kind of offer that extra piece of, of spiritual care, you know. So Going back to the issue of lanes, I think they do converge, you know, but uh, we do know our lane. So we're not, the mental health ministry is not going to try to prescribe, you know, or anything like that. But maybe the, maybe this ministry is able to kind of refer out even, you know. Oh, 100%. It, right? Yeah. And, and the office itself will make sure that the people that we have are properly vetted so that they're, they are credentialed because a lot of Pastors don't know that, and they'll think, oh, this person is a counselor. Somebody raises their hand, says they're a counselor, but they're not. Or they lap, they they allow their uh, credentials to lapse, or maybe they lost their credentials. So I even think how daunting it would be, you know, if someone comes to me in my own person, whether a friend or a family member, it's like, hey, I need help. I don't know where to go. I, right. You know, I can be like, great, me neither. I'll, you know, I will, right. I will accompany you. I will walk with you. But right. if I had somewhere to turn that's like, that I just knew off the top of my head because I was seeing it on church on Sunday. It's like, oh, right. I don't know, but they do. Let's go. Exactly. Let's go ask right. them. I mean, that's a huge, huge benefit right. to to the people of the yeah. diocese. And and it's more than just even referring them to a, a another counselor. It can also refer them to people in the parish. If you have a robust mental health ministry process, you can refer them to food sources like a food pantry you can refer them to someone who might be able to assist the, them with uh, taking care of their kids babysitting services all the different things while you're trying to just you know get your life together i guess for lack of a better term <laughs> yeah you mentioned the word accompaniment and you mm -hmm. have this wonderful uh way of describing yourself in in the article as a fragile um accompanier uh yeah. Can we, what do you mean by that fragile part? Well, this is my take on life. And this goes, this covers every level, uh, the, the psychological dimension, the social relational dimension, the physical dimension, the, the, the sexual dimension, our moral dimension. We're all disordered. I start with the idea that we're, we all, we're not a perfect people, but there's this perfect God who loves us and accepts the fact that we all start out in this disordered world. And God is always there. You know, I came to to heal the sick, you know, not, not the healthy. And so if we all start from that level, then we're all going to be fragile accompaniers. If I'm pretending that I am a, I've got my act together and you don't, then, then I'm not going to be that great of a help. I'm going to be a Pope Francis talks about spiritual direction or spiritual accompanier, and he prefers accompaniment versus direction because direction kind of implies that you're somehow you're already there and you're guiding a person to where you need to be. You know, 
You know, it's you mentioned the ministry, the mental health ministry being one of accompaniment, but um, that seems to be where, um, you know, Francis is calling the church to sort of move in general, right? Outside of any one specific ministry is this a church of accompaniment. Uh, How do you see that overlapping with some of the other ministries happening in your diocese or, or in the future of the church? Well, it again, I, with the understanding that we're all disordered, if we all start from that level, then we should just be accompanying everyone, you know, accompanying the stranger. We, 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 we're in a border state, so we accompany the migrant. We accompany uh, people who are just trying to eke out a living. You know, I'm in a diocese where um, it's one of the largest uh, counties in, and fastest growing counties in, in, the, in the nation. And with that comes a great deal of poverty, people living on the streets. How are we accompanying the people living on the streets? So Catholic Charities, um, St. Vincent de Paul, we have a magnificent St. Vincent de Paul program here. It's just huge. It's great. And it touches every parish. It's really wonderful. So I, I really think that accompaniment is exactly where we need to be. We're losing people in our, in our churches because we're not. We're focused more on, you know, dogmatic teaching rather than just giving a glass of water to somebody here in the desert of Phoenix, you know, that that's, that's where the teaching should begin. So uh, accompaniment really does begin, you know, um, on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think some people would be more comfortable or used to a language of service as opposed to accompaniment because it implies like i have i have something to give you you need my help right um and i and in some ways i'm okay with that you know if people are ready and willing to roll up their sleeves and do something for another i think that's probably a very good start um but um but do you see a distinction there yes yes i do again because it can come from that level of i've got these goods and I'm going to give it to you and don't somehow that feeds my soul because I did something good, but I still don't see you. I haven't embraced you. I haven't accompanied you. I haven't looked at you as a friend in the manner of Jesus who did that. You know, he walked with people. He died with sinners. He, that's what he did. And he knew them by name, you know, and uh, that's what we should be doing, you know, looking at the person. You know, that is a, a Pope Francis quote right there, you know, seeing the person. And, right. um, and a lot of people are very on board with that. But some people, particularly here in the United States, are um, also a little skeptical or resistant to some of that change. Right. I mean, some of that right. is just conversion is hard and, and painful. And other parts, there are like sharp and real disagreements right. with the program. Right. Are you noticing that in your own diocese or how do you navigate that? How do you sort of be a bishop of all people then? Yeah, there, on occasion, I had some people who would just try to shut this whole thing down. They would just say, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in psychiatry or psychology. I think we can just, it, you know, and we'd get letters, you know, I'd get letters saying baptism and, and the sacraments, that's all that matters, you know. Well, in many ways, there's it is true because <laughs> if God is not embedded in our society, particularly through our sacramental life, then that we're probably we should just close up shop. But on the other hand, if we can just keep educating, uh, 
and and just be a mouthpiece for this for for those for the people in the world of of psychology the psychiatrists the psych, uh, psychologists they're loving it that the catholic church is actually responding to their field of medicine it because it gives catholics permission to seek out a counselor mm -hmm. to seek out a psychiatrist if necessary so um the more we talk about it i think it's just going to get better and speaking to the priests especially and the deacons you know they have a microphone every sunday yeah if you can if you can give them that level of sensitivity and open their hearts to really understand the human person before they focus on the moral issues yeah that's something i have struggled with reporting on this is the the tension between not judging, not stigmatizing, but also not normalizing and and ignoring the 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 real pain that suicide and other other things can cause in the lives of people around them. Um, so how how do you deal with that that tension in your ministry? Uh, yeah, I I always like to start with uh, you know people might walk away from our moral precepts or or our laws or or their our rule of life so my challenge is then tell me what is your rule of life and let's see if you can even abide by that and so then you start celebrating those little benchmarks where they are and then walk with them as they might expand that rule of life to include you know better relationships with their families better relationship with god better relationship with the church and so on but you start where a person is. You don't let them off, and you celebrate their their rule of life as they see it right now. And then, if possible, expand that, but at least keep them consistent. You know, and so sometimes you see that with people who struggle with mental health, that they're about they're given up on God, they're given up on church, they give up on their family, they're estranged. You say, okay, well, tell me what you do have. Where where can we begin? And you celebrate what they do have. And that might take months or years. And you start to expand that rule of life. And maybe it gets to a place where they can fully accept a lot of the things that we have within our church. But you just take them where they are. Uh, Bishop John, I uh, want to say thank you for all of the, the work you've done in getting this ministry started, for the essay you wrote in America, and and, and for, for joining us today. Um, but before we let you go, we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests, uh, which is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, uh, fictional or real, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Well, I would say one uh, is on his way. I'm hoping. Uh, John Paul actually made him a, a blessed for sure. Blessed for Angelico. He's an early Renaissance uh, painter. Nice. And uh, and what I liked about him was that he was able to take uh, a, a, a point perspective, a linear perspective that hadn't been a part of the church or, or the art up until that point. And then he was able to employ a theological expression of that as well. So it wasn't just using the mathematical technology of 3D effect, but he was able to kind of create a theological 3D effect, which I think is exactly what we need today when we're thinking about the world in which we're living. 
you know, uh, we need to look at things from a different perspective. Do you have a favorite painting that you can point people to? Uh, well, of his, I, uh, it's Our Lady of Cortona, Our Lady of Cortona. And there, as you'll see, in the very back upper left-hand corner is Adam and Eve being ushered out of the garden. And up in the front, in the front of the painting is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. So you get salvation history, not from a left to right, but from a 3D perspective, mm. which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that that's a new one for us, I think. Saint Fra Angelico. Yeah. Um, Bishop uh, Dolan, once again, the essay is A Ministry of Human Fragility, Why I Established a Mental Health Office in the Diocese of Phoenix. Uh, we're going to link to that in our show notes so people can read it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yes, thank yeah, my you. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, too. If you ever need me, honey, just call me. I waste no time, love. I come straight to you. Oh, the river's wide, dear, and the road is muddy. Even if I gotta swim there, you know I'll be there soon. If you would have told me your mom was coming, I would have worn my finest clothes. All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, Just wanted to jump in and say um, we really appreciated that conversation with Bishop Dolan. Um, I hope you did too. Uh, If there's someone in your life who is struggling with some of these things um, and might want to know that the church is listening and responding, you know, I think this is a really good example of of the church at its best. So um, consider sharing it and, and passing it out. They might be really happy to receive that from you. So just a just a, an invitation to spread the word about this, if you can. And then we have some bittersweet news to share, which is that our wonderful, wonderful production assistant, Kevin Jackson, is leaving America. Today is actually his last day. So we wanted to take a moment to to thank Kevin. You don't you don't get to hear his voice, but we couldn't make this show without him. And he has to put up with the <laughs> the the rougher part of the show. It, we get he doesn't get the edited version of Zach and I, and he's very patient with us. Yes, and also patient with uh, the spills that Ashley sometimes <laughs> produces from the beverages uh, in the studio. Um, Kevin, you've been a joy to work with as a colleague and we are going to miss you so much. So thank you on behalf of the entire Jesuitical family for all you've done for the show and for America Magazine in general. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, And Zach, I think you're up. So I wanted to talk about the scripture reflection that I wrote for America this week. Um, I had Tuesday's scripture reflection, and the first reading was from Sirach, um, which is full of some great advice. one of the things that Sirach says is that, you know, God delights in our offerings, our tithes, our sacrifices, but uh, he explicitly instructs us to offer no bribes. These God does not accept. And it's like, okay, I appreciate that. But I also feel like I have some direct experience that is uh, contrary to the idea that God does not accept bribes. Um, and the person that I'm thinking of is my grandmother, who taught me how to do most of my praying. Um, But I have witnessed her on more than one occasion uh, sort of utter these things to God, like, God, if you get us through this drive when it's thunderstorming, then I promise to say a decade of the rosary um, every night before I go to bed. Or God, if uh, 
Scott makes the baseball team, uh, then I'm going to bring the whole family to mass on vacation or something like that, right? Like these sort of deals with God. Does that ring a bell or a, a oh. type of prayer that well, you've you seen listened, or experienced? Well, if you listened last week, you know I got lost in the desert and I was very much bribing God that if you just let me escape this wadi, um, you know, no more missing mass ever, even when I'm traveling. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I feel like, you know, some people might call that bargaining. Other people might call it bribing. I feel like anyone that's ever talked to a toddler and tried to uh, encourage them or discipline them, no, that's a fine line between bribing and bargaining. And so I was thinking about this. And on the one hand, like my brain knows that this is not really how God works, right? Like God does not work like a genie. He does not like just make magic in our lives and we don't have to like appease him with our little offerings in order to make that magic happen, right? Like in some ways, like God is going to respond with mercy and love and all these things without our response, with or without our response. But on the other hand, I think what's like behind that prayer that most of us utter in in, in moments of crisis in particular are th this like recognition that we don't have control um, uh, and in my grandmother in particular, there was like this trust that God would deliver and God would kind of come through with like mercy and faithfulness and love. Um, and a response to that, she wanted to show gratitude for that. And I think that these are actually like really beautiful characters and qualities and, and aspects of relationship. Um, and so I know that technically, yes, God does not accept bribes like that, but I also know that God can kind of accept prayers um, imperfect as they are, right? And and be in relationship. And so I don't know that, I don't think that Sirach and I necessarily disagree about it. Um, I think I just sort of like had to unpack uh, some of the bribes that I've actually heard. Uh, yeah. My well, the reason offer. God doesn't accept bribes is because he already wants what's best for you, even without without your petty offering. Yes, but I- <laughs> So I, that's reassuring. <laughs> yes. Um, the, other, the last part was like, I always, I just like feel like these are often- at their best when they're on behalf of other people, mm. right? Like, because um, like when I was a kid, I'd be like, God, help me pass this test. And, you know, I'll say in our father or something. But I feel like they're- Your really, grandma was a little less selfish. She was a little <laughs> less selfish than me. So that's what I was thinking about. Um, so listeners, maybe uh, that's an experience you have had in prayer where you have been backed into a corner and said, God, please get me out of this um, and offered to do something in return and probably failed to do so. Or maybe you didn't. What was that like and what did that really say about what your desires were and how your relationship with God works? All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance for the very last time from Kevin Jackson and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.